0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 31st, 1986. Aeromexico Flight 498, a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 with 64 people on board, is on approach to land at Los Angeles' LAX airport after a short flight from Tijuana, Mexico. The pilots are busy preparing to land when air traffic control contacts them to give them a new runway to land on. After giving them the updated news, the air traffic controller never hears back any confirmation then in horror, realizes Aeromexico-498 has disappeared off of his radar. The controller asks another nearby flight if they can see the plane, but they report only seeing a billowing smoke screen on the ground at their 11 o'clock position. Firefighters rush to the scene to find the plane has crashed into houses in the Los Angeles suburbs. What happened to a routine flight on approach to land at LAX? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello everyone, welcome to Black Box Down, it's Gus and Chris. Welcome back, Chris. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, we had a little break, had a couple of supplemental episodes in there, but we're back with regular episodes.
1: Also launched a new show.
0: Also did. We did launch a new show. Look at you with the cross promotion. We have a a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Tales from the Stinky Dragon. Both Chris and I are in it. It's not quite the same as Black Box Down. It's a little more comedic based uh, about D&D. You don't have to understand Dungeons and Dragons to follow it. It's more about like improv storytelling and making each other laugh
1: you would you say that's yeah. fair chris yeah i mean it's it's just like if you like hearing funny stories and uh and um i don't know like telling jokes and more narrative
0: yeah it's called tales from the stinky dragon you can find it wherever you get podcasts if you're listening to this one if you search for tales from the stinky dragon you'll find that too if you don't have enough gus and chris in your life as well as some other people <laughs> blaine who is in one of our supplemental episodes uh is also uh in that show blaine gibson yeah. And of course, uh, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media uh, for this podcast at Black Box Down Pod. We repost uh, images and other supplemental material that maybe don't get quite conveyed in the audio format. And I've got a, a terrible photo from this incident that I, I will be sharing on social media.
1: I have to say, it was a great uh, tease there, Gus, because it's like, oh, we've got a plane coming in, look up, and then it's just smoke.
0: It was difficult, right? It's It's a horrible tragedy, right? The controller... Uh, we don't, we're actually not going to talk too much about the air traffic controller in this episode, but, uh, he was actually a junior controller. He had only been on the job for a little while. Oh no. Yeah. He had taken over for someone else who was more senior. He convinced the regular traffic controller to go take a smoke break. That way he could get more, more experience, more practice and sit down at the, at the radar. And, uh, you know, he's dealing with all of his stuff. And as far as he knows, he's doing everything right. Then, you know, this this plane that he's talking to that he sends to another runway just disappears, you know? And, uh, Yeah, you know, he asks, you know, the other planes, do you see anything? And they report, you know, seeing this crash. Oddly enough, the firefighters that I mentioned, they had been doing training exercises near where the impact happened. They saw the crash, so they rushed over to try to put the fires out and find out what's happening. We've talked about incidents like this before where planes crash into neighborhoods. And, uh, I mean, it's it's always awful. I mean, there's it's yeah. really, really a terrible thing. Like, plane crashes are already, you know, violent, bad enough as it is. And when it happens into a neighborhood... It's even worse. Yeah. So this plane, like I said, was Air Mexico Flight 498. It was a passenger flight from Mexico City to Los Angeles. And on the way, it stopped in Guadalajara, Laredo, and Tijuana on August 31st, 1986. The flight was crewed by Captain Arturo Valdez Prom, who was 46 years old and had 10,641 flight hours. And First Officer Jose Héctor Valencia, who's 26 years old with 1,463 flight hours. It was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9. This particular plane was actually delivered to Delta in 1969. Then Aeromexico later acquired it. So how old would it be at that point? It was like 17 years old. And things were a little different back then. So in, in doing his research, Dennis couldn't find the exact number of hours or cycles that this plane had been through.
1: But 19 years is like old, but not ancient, like some of the right. other ones we've talked about. So 17 years old. Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah, it's it's not terribly old. It's like getting on a plane today that was you know, put into service in 2004. Yeah. You know, you probably wouldn't think twice about it. No. And on top of the pilot and co-pilot I mentioned, there were four other crew members and 58 passengers on board this flight. And I know I say this every time we do one of these, the first few legs went by uneventfully. At 11.20 a.m. Pacific time, flight 498 departed Tijuana and climbed to 10,000 feet. And the flight from Tijuana to Los Angeles is actually really short. You know, Tijuana is just on the other side of the border from San Diego. I mapped it out. And to drive from the Tijuana Airport to LAX is only a 146-mile drive. So it's it's really, really close. So like I said, they climbed up to 10,000 feet, and about 25 minutes later, they were instructed to descend to 7,000 feet and contact Los Angeles Approach Control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually a really nice day. The weather uh, was clear skies, 14-mile visibility. At 11.47 a.m., the flight was instructed to fly on a 320-degree heading to intercept the ILS for runway 25 left. So what is this? It's like 27 minutes after they take mm-hmm. off. They're you know, told how to get on the ILS to come into land.
1: Yeah, that is a really quick flight.
0: It's a super quick flight. That uh, might be closer than Austin to Houston, right?
1: Yeah, I think it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, and we, you know, I only say that because I'm sure you fly. Austin to Houston, Austin yeah. to Dallas, these are places that we connect and fly through all the time.
1: We fly to Dallas just as a connecting piece, but it's right. like a, you basically get up and then go back down.
0: I actually had to go work in Dallas once. I flew there uh, just for the day and I took nothing with me. I, like I had no carry-on, no no, no, I just, you know, showed <laughs> up with my wallet, got on the plane, you know, went and did work and then got on the plane later that evening to come home. It's weird to fly with, with nothing.
1: Yeah, I guess it's kind of like just a long commute at that point.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was weird. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting distracted here. So then a couple minutes after they're given those previous instructions, they're instructed to slow down to 210 knots and they complied. And 210 knots is 241 miles an hour or 389 kilometers an hour. Air traffic control then advised flight 498 of traffic in their area at 10 o'clock one mile away, flying northbound with an unknown altitude. So they're being told, you know, hey, there's other planes in the area, just keep an eye out. Mm -hmm. The crew acknowledged this transmission, but never responded letting air traffic control that that they had seen the other plane. Air traffic control then cleared flight 498 to descend to 6,000 and to reduce the speed to 190 knots, which is 218 miles an hour or 352 kilometers an hour. Uh At 1152, the crew acknowledged this instruction, and this would be the last communication received from that flight. Air traffic control then advised them that there's going to be a change of plans and they told them to expect the ILS for runway 24 right instead of 25 left. These runways are on the opposite sides of the airport from each other. If you've ever flown into LAX, Mm -hmm. 24 right is the one that's closest to Lincoln Boulevard. It's the one you can see sometimes when you're driving on Lincoln Boulevard on that side of the the airport. Uh-huh. If you've ever played GTA 5, runway 2-5 <laughs> left is, the, is probably the runway you're most familiar with when you go through the gate and it's like uh, on the opposite side of the airport from there. Okay. You and I make videos in GTA sometimes
1: Yeah, yeah. First. So that's, It gives me, I now know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> Whenever we meet in GTA to film one of these videos, we normally meet on runway 2-5 left. So that's where they were supposed to land at first and then they were moved to 2-4 right. But after air traffic control told them about this change, there was no acknowledgement back for the instruction. Oh. At the same time this was going on, there was a Grumman Tiger airplane flying in the area. And the Grumman Tiger, it's a small general aviation single-engine aircraft that seats four people. It's like a little single-engine prop plane.
1: Was it flying into the airport? It
0: was in the area. It was in the TCA. This episode is actually going to touch on some things that we've covered in previous episodes. And I'll try to give refreshers as we go along. But if you remember in our Hughes Air West episode where the F-4 Phantom collided with the Hughes Air West plane, Mm -hmm. we talked about... How back then, there was this policy between planes that they called see and avoid. So, planes would have to be on the lookout for each other and avoid other planes. Yeah. After the Hughes Air West collision, you know, we talked about how airports instituted what they called uh, a TCA. And it's basically an area around an airport that looks like an upside-down cake, an upside-down layered cake, where this airspace is restricted. And to come in or out of it, you have to talk to air traffic control, and they have to clear you and guide you through this uh, area. And the reason Hmm. it looks like an upside-down cake is, like, closer to the ground at lower altitudes, it's smaller. But then as you increase in altitude, it grows bigger and bigger.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, like like a cone.
0: Like a cone, but not as gradual. It's more, you know, like a cake. So this plane, this Grumman Tiger, violated the TCA without, you know, permission. So they established radio contact with air traffic control at 1151, and informed air traffic control that he was on visual flight rules flight from Fullerton to Monterey via the Van Nuys Vortac, and he requested an altitude of 4,500 feet with flight following services. I'll explain all that in a second.
1: uh Uh-huh.
0: Air traffic control responded, giving them the transponder code of 4524, and a few seconds later, air traffic control asks the Grumman Tiger if he was at 4,500 feet, to which the Tiger responded that he was climbing through 3,400 feet. The controller then reprimanded the pilot, saying he was in the middle of the terminal control area, the TCA. And in the future, he needs to look at his TCA chart. These pilots all have TCA charts. He should know you're not supposed to be here. Uh, The controller then told him, like, you just had an aircraft pass on your left at 5,000 feet, and there's a lot of jets in this area right at 3,500 feet where you are. Oh, man. And on top of that, okay, it's going to get a little more complicated now. Yeah, yeah. About 10 minutes before that, at 1140, there was a Piper Archer that took off from Torrance, California. And a Piper Archer is another small single-engine aircraft used in general aviation. This Piper Archer was flown by a man named William Kramer, who was 53 years old and had 231 flight hours. He also had two passengers with him in his Piper. It was, uh, I believe it was his wife and his daughter. He had filed a VFR flight plan to Big Bear, California, and his route was to fly direct to Long Beach, California, then direct to Paradise Vortac, then direct to Big Bear at an altitude of 9,500 feet. Mm -hmm. This flight plan, if he had followed it, would have kept him out of the LAX TCA. However... Kramer did not activate his flight plan before the flight, but he was not required to because he was on a visual flight rule, a VFR. At 11.40, he was cleared for takeoff, gave his acknowledgement, and took off from Torrance. And that was the last radio transmission from him.
1: You're building suspense here, guys, because I'm like, wait, which plane is is going to hit it? <laughs> There's a
0: lot of mistakes going on. That's this uh-huh. kind of the stage we're setting here. And according to the air traffic control radar data, after he left Torrance, Kramer turned into an easterly heading toward the Paradise Vortac with a transponder code of 1200 and entered the Los Angeles terminal control area without receiving clearance from air traffic control. So basically, if he had followed his flight plan and gone down to Long Beach like he was supposed to, he would have skirted the TCA. But he kind of, instead of doing that, he went on a more direct heading towards the Paradise Vortac and like entered that uh, terminal control area, which he should not have. Why would he do that? So again, there was no further radio contact from him. And since it's a small plane, you know, there's there's not as much data that's known The speculation is that he had just moved to Los Angeles not that long ago. I think he had lived in Spokane, Washington previously. And he was not as familiar with the geography of Los Angeles. Since he had visual flight rules, well, I'm going to get to, I'll explain VFR a little more in depth in a bit. (laughs) But the gist of it is when you're flying with VFR, you rely a lot more on visual cues, right? Like he's looking out, like maybe he's looking for the 405. Uh He's like looking for freeways or something like, what direction do I need to go in? Like, oh, there's landmarks that I recognize, and maybe he just became a little disoriented. Maybe he didn't have the right mm-hmm. landmark and he just went in the wrong direction. But I'm going to explain, I promise, in just uh, just a bit, I'm going to explain a lot more about VFR because I know that it can be a little confusing. So about 12 minutes after that Piper took off at about 11.52 a.m., flight 498 and the Piper actually did collide over Cerritos, California, which is about 24 miles east of LAX. They collided at an altitude of about 6,500 feet. And both airplanes fell within the city limits of Cerritos.
1: Wait, the Piper's the the third plane. The third plane, yeah, third plane, not, not the second one.
0: The second correct. It was a decoy, Gus. It's a decoy, but it's gonna it's gonna come back. It's gonna be important okay. too. I promise you. The planes both fell into a residential neighborhood. They destroyed five houses and damaged oh, seven right. others. Yeah, everyone on board both planes was killed, as well as fifteen people on the ground.
1: That's horrible.
0: Yeah, eight other people on the ground sustained minor injuries. There's a an interview I saw with a woman who, her house was, was impacted by some of this debris. I believe that this was a Sunday morning. And uh, she said, you know, her husband and her three kids were at home and that she left to go to the grocery store to buy some stuff to make everyone breakfast. And that as she was driving back from the store, she saw it happen and it hit her house. Oh. And it killed her husband and two of her kids. Like only one of her kids survived.
1: And she saw it happen.
0: Right. Uh, can you imagine? Like she was driving back from the grocery store just a couple blocks away from her house and, you know, saw all of this. Uh, she said, like, as she got out of her car and, like, tried to get closer to her house, like, the street and everything was just filled with debris and body parts. I mean, she she described oh. some very gruesome things that she saw. And that uh, she found her son who did survive. She found her son at her neighbor's house. But, yeah, I mean, it, I, it's awful. It's horrifying to hear stories from people who were impacted by this. Yeah, Like I said, both planes were destroyed due to the collision, the ground impact, and the fire. The value of the Piper was about $28,000 and the value of the DC-9 was about $9.5 million. Wow. Just the disparity between the two. Yeah. The Piper's uh, a lot smaller. Uh, I don't remember. I want to say that the Piper was the first plane that the pilot Kramer had purchased. He had purchased it a couple of years before this. I don't remember off the top of my head. I didn't write it down. Okay. So I want to talk about some explanation, explain mm-hmm. about VFR and some of the things that we mentioned above. So there's, I think there's some things that we've covered before, like the TCA, hopefully people remember that. Uh, I tried to explain a little bit, but I don't know if we've really gotten into VFR in depth. So we mentioned that Kramer, who was the Piper pilot, did not activate his VFR flight plan. He wasn't required to, and really wasn't required to file a flight plan in the first place. VFR flight plans are just used to inform air traffic control about a planned flight. And the purpose of the VFR flight plan is is to activate search and rescue in case you know you don't get where you're going within 30 minutes of your proposed arrival time.
1: When you say activate, do you mean like transmit it to the air traffic control or yeah? And this is 1986, so they like fax it or well, basically he tells them about it, right? Okay, but he doesn't
0: like need to be in constant communication with them. He doesn't need to say I'm at this waypoint and then get okay. directions to the next waypoint. Okay, this l- largely allows them to stay out of contact with air traffic control most of the time and fly as long as they follow some rules about altitudes in airspaces. So it's just a way, like, if you want to go, like, casually driving, right? Like, if you Mm -hmm. don't put anything in your GPS and you're like, I know where to go, I'm going to the grocery store. Yeah, It's like, you're just going to kind of go as opposed to like, oh, I need to follow this route exactly. So
1: you can do that. That's what I was wondering. If you just have a small private plane, you can just take off and go yeah as long
0: as like i said as long as you follow some rules regarding altitude and airspace as long as and we kind of actually have touched on some of these rules in the past as well i think Mm -hmm. when we talked about the goal collision in brazil similarly in in when you're doing uh when you're flying with vfr rules the rule of thumb is when you're flying easterly you fly at an odd altitude plus 500 so like if you're flying easterly you fly at 5,500 feet And if you're flying west, you fly at an even altitude plus 500, like 6,500 feet. Yeah. And the other big rule is you have to contact air traffic control if you want to fly through airspaces around airports. And they'll either let you pass through or they'll give you instructions to avoid the airspace. Both the Grumman Tiger and the Piper airplane flew through the terminal control area. And in the United Mm -hmm. States, this is basically classified as Class Bravo airspace. It's found around big airports like LAX, Mm -hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth. And we've mentioned this before, it looks like a multi-layered cake upside down. So as you increase in altitude, the diameter of the airspace gets larger and larger. And in order to enter Class Bravo, you must have explicit permission from air traffic control to do so, which neither the Grumman Tiger or the Piper had. Yeah. One thing I said, the Grumman Tiger requested a flight following. Flight following is where a VFR flight asks air traffic control to keep an eye on them and passes them from controller to controller along their route so they're always in contact with someone. It helps the pilot have access to more information in the area about like weather Mm -hmm. and traffic. It's not something VFR flights are required to do, but he was doing it just to have more information. Wait, and which flight was that? The Grumman Tiger. Oh, okay. The Piper did not have flight following, and the standard for that is to squawk 1200 on the transponder to let air traffic control know that you're flying VFR and flying on your own. But even if you're flying with flight following, unless the controller explicitly says you are cleared to enter Bravo, you are prohibited from flying in the terminal control area. Okay. So they were doing two different things, but they were both still doing two kind of the same wrong thing, I guess. Yeah. You know what's a universally horrible experience? Getting walked in on the, in the bathroom. You don't want strangers looking in on you doing your business. So why do you let them do it on your personal business? You know, the internet without ExpressVPN lets anyone, your ISP, other tech giants, hackers, peek in on all your info. That's right. Your internet service provider knows every website you visit and can sell that data to ad companies and tech giants. By creating a secure encrypted tunnel between your devices and the internet, ExpressVPN puts a stop to this and keeps your private activity private. It's great. I use it on my computers. It's super easy. It's one button in my browser. Turn it on. Turn it off if you want. Change your region. Whatever you want to do, it could not be simpler. I mean, I can't imagine an easier way to get it done. Uh, ExpressVPN is the number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. Use our exclusive link, which is expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Saving money is sweet, and honey is even sweeter. No, not bee barf honey. Honey, the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 300,000 stores online. Here's how it works you imagine you're shopping one of your favorite sites. When you go to checkout, the honey button drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons and sit back, relax, wait as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, you watch the price drop. Here recently, I was looking for a Mother's Day gift online at one of those flower websites. Uh, I went there, and uh, at the very checkout, I hit the Honey button, and boom, there it was. I found a coupon. I saved money instantly. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. By getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. I'd never recommend something I don't use, so get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. Meandy's believes that comfort isn't just about what's touching your skin. It's all about feeling comfortable in your skin. That's why MeUndies not only uses sustainable, breathable, soft as all heck fabric, but also gives you endless styles, colors, and prints to choose from for comfort inside and out. Uh, I've got tons of different Miandis. I love them. I mean, there's just so many different ones that I have. I can't imagine wearing anything else at this point. I'm so in love with these underwear. They're absolutely the best ever. Uh, MeUndies offers classic colors to ridiculous prints. It's also you can fully express yourself in your own special way. Meandies are also available in a range of sizes from extra small to 4XL. And Meindies has a great offer for our listeners. You can get 15% off and free shipping with your first purchase. They also have their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. So to get 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com blackboxdown. That's MeUndies.com blackboxdown. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB. They looked into the pilots and the controllers. And after examining the training records and qualifications of the Aeromexico crew, they found nothing that was extraordinary and they found that the pilots were fully qualified. Air traffic controllers were also qualified in accordance with regulations and their examination found nothing extraordinary either. The pilot of the Piper, which is the one that collided, mm-hmm. was qualified in accordance with his applicable regulations. His friends and flight instructor that were interviewed told the NTSB he had always been very careful about the rules. He was a good student. who was always attentive when it came to looking out for other traffic and using charts. Uh, and like I mentioned, That pilot of the Piper did recently move from Washington to Los Angeles in late 1985. And when he moved to L.A., he took a flight with a local instructor to familiarize himself with the area and flew six more flights totaling five and a half hours in the L.A. area. So like I said, he was still kind of new to the L.A. area and maybe didn't quite know his landmarks very well.
1: And L.A. can be confusing. I mean, he took a flight to get familiar with another pilot. So that's good.
0: Yeah, it seemed like he was trying to do the right thing and he was trying to, you know, make sure he knew the area before really Mm -hmm. flying around. But still, five and a half hours is not a ton of time. Yeah. The NTSB performed a visibility study to determine the physical limitations to visibility from the pilot and co-pilot seats of the DC-9 and from the Piper Archer. So basically, they want to see, like, the way the windows are laid out, should they have seen each other? So to accomplish this, the time histories of both airplanes' flight paths and altitudes were compiled with binocular photographs of the cockpits. And the binocular photograph is taken by a camera with two lenses that are spaced apart about the average distance between human eyes. Hmm. The viewing angle for each airplane were calculated and plotted in relation to the design eye reference point for each airplane's windshields. And the design eye reference point, by the way, I, I want to point something out. I'm going to explain what the design eye reference point is here right now. But the acronym for it is DERP. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear me say DERP, it's the design eye <laughs> reference point. I'm just saying that right now. because <laughs> I'm going to start saying derp here in a bit. <laughs> sorry.
1: It, it, it's a it's a really really smart sounding thing that yeah. you make it it, sound really. It, it's it's a highly scientific measurement. It's the derp.
0: <laughs>
1: sorry.
0: Okay. So uh, so the derp is a point. <laughs> so the it's a point fixed in relation to the aircraft structure at which the pinpoint of the pilot's eye should be located. So it's like mm-hmm. kind of like a focus yeah. point. Uh, It's designed by aircraft engineers to give the pilots the most optimal visibility outside of the aircraft. In commercial aircraft pilots have an indicator they can use to make sure they're seated correctly. Oh. Yeah. In general aviation aircraft, the pilot should adjust their seat to ensure they have a 15 degree angle of view over the nose. So if someone was standing 30 feet in front of their plane, they should be able to see their feet in order to be in the optimal position. Okay. I don't know if you ever do this. I always mess with my seat in my car. I feel like I'm never sitting correctly. I wish that there was a derp in my car. (laughs) Well, there's a derp in my car, but uh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) besides the one behind the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's like you get in, you kind of adjust your seat so you can comfortable your mirror so you can see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because
0: like even in my car, sometimes I feel like I don't see like you know there's like columns that are like next Mm -hmm. to your windshield and your your window. I feel like sometimes that obscures pedestrians or bicyclists, and I'm, I'm always having to like move. Like, is there someone back there? I wish there was an indicator so I could know I'm sitting in the optimal position to get all the views out of my windows. Yeah. So this study that they ran showed that between 1150 and 56 seconds and 1152 and one second, so like a minute and five seconds, the Piper Archer was at about 15 to 30 degrees to the left of the derp of both seats and could be seen from both the first officer and captain seat, assuming they did not move. Between that same time frame, the DC-9 was about 50 degrees to the right of the Piper pilot's derp on the right windshield and could only be seen by him on the far right side of the co-pilot's windshield. Mm. For someone sitting in the right seat of the Piper, the DC-9 would have been at about 55 degrees to the right of the derp, but neither of the two passengers in the Piper had any type of scan training. So, I mean, that, like at that degree, they'd have to be looking, you know, pretty much at their oh. right shoulder to see it.
1: The In the DC? No, this is in the Piper. Okay.
0: So they'd have to be looking out to their right to see that. In the DC-9, they'd have to be looking 15 to 30 degrees to the left of the drip. So not straight ahead. They'd have to like turn, not all the way to their shoulder, I guess, but like to mm-hmm. their left side to be able to see it. Okay. And remember, the Piper's a lot smaller. It's a single engine plane. So they'd yeah. have to turn all that way and then spot it out there. Yeah. And then from the Piper's perspective, the DC-9 is a lot bigger, but they'd have to turn a lot further to their right to see it. Speed-wise, are they
1: going about the same Speeder.
0: So, like I said earlier, the DC-9 was instructed by air traffic control to go at about 190 knots for their landing at this point. Mm-hmm. The top speed of the Piper Archer is 129 knots, which is about 148 miles an hour. So, the Piper was going significantly slower than uh, the DC-9 was. Okay. But the relative speed when they hit is still extremely yeah. oh, quick. Yeah. And even that, like 148 miles an hour, you hit something in your car going 148 miles an hour, that's really bad. Yeah. So... The NTSB also looked into the Aeromexico training program, and they found the Aeromexico flight operations manual contained a specific section addressing collision avoidance that contains nine articles which command the flight crews to maintain vigilance and reiterate right-of-way rules. The NTSB also found that Aeromexico DC-9 flight crew members receive recurrent training twice a year that include two days of ground school where aircraft systems are reviewed and either two days of simulator training or one day of flight training, Each recurrent training session was followed by an on-route flight check. So it seems like Aeromexico was very diligent about training Mm -hmm. when it came to this. Uh, You know, sometimes when we cover these incidents, we hear like, oh, the training was lax or they were teaching the wrong thing. That is not the case here. Like Aeromexico was very thorough about this. Yeah. The NTSB also wondered if the controller did not take notice of the Piper radar target and cited three possible factors for this. First, the controller could have been distracted from the critical area of his radar display due to the entry of the Grumman Tiger into the airspace and the change of runways for flight 498 happening at the same time. See, that's why the Grumman Tiger was mentioned. It was a mm-hmm. distraction. I, I know, it, like you said, it's like a red herring. In this, when I'm telling the story, it's kind of, it's a distraction to you when you're listening, but it was mm-hmm. also a distraction for the air traffic controller.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's like, what are you doing? Is Do they get fined or something? Is there any sort of consequence for flying in the wrong airspace? So usually, from what I
0: understand... If you violate Class Bravo airspace, after you land, you typically get a call from the controller, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and you're supposed to call and speak with someone from the FAA. And normally, you fill out a report in the Aviation Safety Reporting System, and you voluntarily submit information about what happened to the FAA. And usually, if you go through these steps and you voluntarily submit this information, they're pretty lenient with you. Okay. Because normally, it's an accident, right? Yeah. And normally, nothing bad happens. From my understanding, that's typically what will happen.
1: Is there a scenario where this other plane, the second one, wasn't there and the air traffic controller had seen the the third
0: one? It's possible. I'm going to keep going through the the reasons that the air traffic controller didn't see it, Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll touch on that. So the second reason they came up with was it's possible the controller may have unintentionally discounted the non-mode-C VFR radar return of the Piper as a threat because it was located within the lateral confines of the TCA. So... He may have seen it pop up on the radar, on the radar, but the information was lacking. Like it may have just showed up as a blip without any airspeed or altitude information since it was a non-mode C return. Uh, so he may have popped up. Maybe he thought it was an anomaly. It was a like a malfunction of the radar.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe he didn't notice it because it didn't have the additional information on it. I don't know. I can't speak to that because that's whatever happened in the air traffic controller's head. Yeah. And third, it's possible that, that the primary radar return of the Piper either did not appear on the display or the strength of the return was compromised by atmospheric interference due to a temperature inversion. So that's the other possibility. We talked about this in other incidents. The controllers at the t- who were in the tower at the time stated that their radar was old and kind of finicky. It didn't always oh. work. Sometimes mountains or sometimes buildings mm-hmm. would interfere with radar returns and Maybe you wouldn't see a plane pop up for one or two sweeps of the radar. I don't know. So maybe it wasn't there. Maybe it showed up and was discounted because it didn't have the uh, mode C return. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was there and it just wasn't seen because of the Grumman Tiger. Any of those are possible. So the planes collided at about a 90 degree angle at an altitude of about 6,560 feet. And the collision occurred inside the Los Angeles TCA. Uh, These are the findings, by the way. Okay. Both pilots were required to see and avoid the other airplane. member I talked about see and avoid earlier. There was no evidence that either pilot tried to evade the collision. And we talked about see and avoid in Hughes Air West in the past as well. The pilot of the Piper was not cleared to enter the Los Angeles TCA. His entry was inadvertent and was not the result of any physiological disablement. There was some speculation uh, when they did the autopsy on the Piper pilot they found a significant amount of uh, blockage in uh, the arteries around his heart. Mm-hmm. So there was initially some speculation that maybe he had a heart attack. Oh. And uh, that's what caused the plane to veer, of course. But uh, they eventually found that that was not the case, that he did not have a heart attack, that he just had yeah. blockage, but he, he did not have a heart attack at that time. Okay. The unauthorized presence of the Piper in the TCA was a causal factor to the accident. The positions of the Piper were displayed on the controller's display by at least an alphanumeric triangle, However, the Piper's primary target may not have been displayed or may have been displayed weekly due to the effects of an atmospheric temperature inversion on the performance of the radar. The analog beacon response from the Piper's transponder was not displayed because of the equipment configuration at Los Angeles uh, TRACON traffic control. The controller stated he did not see the Piper's radar return on his display and therefore did not issue a traffic advisory to Flight 498. His failure to see this return and to issue a traffic advisory to Flight 498 contributed to the occurrence of this accident. The Los Angeles TRACON was not equipped with an automated conflict alert system, which could detect and alert the controller of the conflict between the Piper and Flight 498. So it's kind of a summary. I think we covered all of those things already leading up to this. And the NTSB determined the probable cause of the accident was the limitations of the air traffic control system to provide collision protection through both air traffic control procedures and automated redundancy. Factors contributing to the accident were the inadvertent and unauthorized entry of the Piper Archer into the Los Angeles Terminal Control Area and limitations of the see-and-avoid concept to ensure traffic separation under the conditions of the conflict. So there were a few recommendations, of course, uh, to try to uh, keep things like this from happening in the future. Uh, There are four that I'm going to cover here. Expedite the development, operational evaluation, and final certification of the Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System for installation and use in certified air carrier aircraft. We've talked about this. This is TCAS.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We mentioned this in the, the Goal 1907 flight where it collided with an Embraer. TCAS is the system that alerts planes if there's a potential collision between them and then performs that conflict resolution. So oh, it'll tell yeah. one, descend. Yeah, it'll tell the other one, climb. Uh, so the reason that TCAS is mandated in aircraft now is in part because of this incident. Oh, They were already working on it, but now this collision is one of the ones that showed this needs to be mandated in all planes.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and i'm I'm just fascinated by TCAS in general that the system works it alerts you and then does the conflict resolution it tells which plane to go down and which plane to go up or you know what speed what to do what it tells you (laughs) there's an automated system that tells you how to avoid a collision it's mind-blowing especially that it was developed and implemented uh so long ago at this point
1: well it's yeah it's another thing that'd be good for cars to have where instead of like two cars going at each other they both swerve the same direction and hit each. other. It's like they both swerve opposite directions. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm sure you'll start to
0: see that with like more safety mm-hmm. features and more like autonomous features in vehicles. Robot and cars. Yeah, with robot cars, you'll start. I'm sure you'll start to see that once there's a standard established for that kind of uh, like communication. Yeah. Uh, another recommendation they had here. Implement procedures to track, identify, and take appropriate enforcement action against pilots who intrude into airport radar service areas without the required ATC communications. So this is, you know, they're going to start tracking if you interfere, if you get into Class Bravo airspace, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to identify it? How are they, what actually going to take a lot of that came about because of this. Require transponder equipment with mode C altitude reporting for operations around all terminal control areas and within an airport radar service area after a specified date compatible with implementation of traffic alert and collision avoidance system requirements for air carrier aircraft. So just basically make sure planes have a mode C transponder that lets the controllers know what's Mm -hmm. their altitude, you know, what's going on, where it allows them to find these planes more specifically instead of just showing a blip on the radar, it shows a blip and tells them what altitude they're at. Yeah And you even heard, I think I mentioned earlier when um, the controller was talking to the Grumman aircraft, he's asking, "What altitude are you at? Are you at 45 like The pilot has to tell the controller where he is, altitude-wise. And the last recommendation: take expedited action to add VFR conflict alert logic to automated radar terminal systems as an interim measure to the ultimate implementation of the advanced automation systems. So give better alerts to air traffic control when there is a potential for a VFR flight to interfere with another flight.
1: What was the time period in which they were visible to each other before they hit? Off the top of my head, I want to say
0: that the NTSB speculates that they should have been able to see each other for two to three minutes before impact. Oh, so that's like, that was longer than I thought. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the Piper is a smaller plane and was more off to the side for the DC-9. It was more out of the way for them to see it. The Piper may have been distracted. Again, this is speculation. We don't know for certain. Mm-hmm. He may have been looking more at the ground, trying to find landmarks, since he wasn't as familiar with LA and was flying VFR. Since he did enter Class Bravo airspace, he may have been lost. And so he may have been looking mm-hmm. down, trying to find a freeway or a building or something to try to find out where he was going. So he may not have been looking up. And again, the plane was not right in front of him. It was off to his right. Gotcha. So he was probably looking down and was not looking around uh, for other planes. But... There was plenty of time for them to see each other. And he should have seen it. The DC-9 is a lot bigger than he is.
1: Yeah.
0: On March 11, 2006, the city of Cerritos dedicated a new sculpture garden featuring a memorial to the victims of the accident that consists of three pieces. One piece which resembles a wing commemorates all of the victims who perished aboard the Aeromexico jet and the Piper. A similar but smaller and darker wing commemorates all of the victims who perished on the ground. Each wing rests on a pedestal that lists their respective victims in alphabetical order. In front of the memorial lies a bench which commemorates all victims and allows visitors to sit and reflect on the disaster. And, of course, the other big thing to come out of this is TCAS, which we already covered. It's unbelievable. Helps avoid any situations like this. There's one other footnote I want to cover here. Uh, It's not really relevant to the investigation or anything. But did you ever watch Breaking Bad, Chris? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we've mentioned it before. Oh, right. We have on the show. Remember I mentioned there was a junior controller who was manning the radar when this uh, incident happened? Uh-huh. His name was Walter White. Oh. And Breaking Bad had a similar collision plane storyline. Yeah. Uh, the Wayfarer 515 in Breaking Bad where two planes collided because of uh air traffic controller not noticing mm-hmm. because of you know a series of events that Walter White sets into place. So just a little bit of trivia. <laughs> just, there's no yeah. connection other than that. Just the guy's name was Walter White and Breaking Bad had a plane collision storyline
1: But it's interesting it's like i wonder even unintentionally mm-hmm. that's where the kind of name came from who knows
0: yeah and uh this controller uh I've, i believe he changed careers after this i think you know he took some time off after the collision i think he tried to come back to uh to do some air traffic control work but he just he just couldn't do it anymore you know uh and i don't blame him
1: yeah i mean that's pretty uh terrifying i mean it sounds like he really wasn't doing anything wrong and he was just working and trying to deal with another problem. And then, yeah, but it would still feel terrible.
0: Yeah, I'm sure he still, you know, blamed himself for it. And, you know, I think the NTSB does actually put some of the blame on his shoulders in reading these findings. But it's also kind of vague. Like, it was maybe his fault, but maybe not. You know, who knows? The equipment was old and not that great. There were temperature inversions. There was this other pilot who was intruding in the airspace. And, And I think, actually, he did get a little reprimanded. I think they said that... He spent too much time talking to the uh, the Grumman Tiger plane. They oh. should have just like instruct, gave him his instructions, and then moved on. Instead of um, you know reprimanding him a bit, but you know that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But that's it. That's Aero Mexico four nine eight terrible tragedy, which you know ultimately led to uh, TCAS and a lot more safety. You know, and I think that's the big takeaway. Even though this is horribly tragic and lives were lost. You know, flying today is. So much safer uh, because of lessons learned from incidents like this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Someone actually took a picture of Aeromexico 498 crashing to the ground. Oh, it's a really grainy, low-resolution photo. I'll put I'll, I'll put it on social if you follow us at Blackboxdownpod. Uh, but basically, it looks like when the Piper hit it, it took off the horizontal stabilizer and most of the vertical stabilizers. Like it hit the back of the plane. Gotcha. And you can see the the Aeromexico 498. It looks like it's upside down and nose diving into the ground. But follow us on social media at Black Down Pod. And on a more lighthearted note, we do also have our new Dungeons and Dragons podcast, Tales from the Stinky Dragon, with Chris and I are both in. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons and Dragons. Just give it a listen. If you do know about Dungeons & Dragons, maybe you'll enjoy a little more. But, you know, it's a lot lot about just like telling stories and improv and laughing. Yeah, so if you're looking for the next thing to listen to right now, well, there you go. Yeah, we should have a couple episodes out by the time that this episode airs.
1: And they're quick. You can listen to the first one in like, what, 30 minutes? So I think 30, 40 minutes. I think they're about as
0: long as Black Box Down episodes. Yeah. But all right, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. Bye.